Well, good morning. Welcome to Household of Faith. In a um, fit of insanity, Pastor has asked me to bring the message this morning. And um, so a couple disclaimers before we start. Uh, First disclaimer is I am a father. So if I look up and you're just staring at me, I'll assume you did not understand what I said. And I'll probably repeat it again and again and again until there's some kind of, you know, and I'm sure all the parents in here understand the glazed look. Um, But then also uh, another disclaimer, actually a prayer request is please pray for me uh, because in a lot of ways, this is not scary for me. You know, being in front of people, having a microphone, and it's very easy to put confidence in the flesh. And this, this whole week, I've been praying that I would have no confidence in the flesh. Um, there is no power in the messenger. There is power in the message. Um, and then when we got the text with Pastor asking for me to preach, um, my first thought, very selfishly, was like, whew, it's going to be a lot of spiritual warfare. <laughs> and then I showed the text to Susan, and that was her first comment. And this whole week has just been unloaded with spiritual warfare, and I don't imagine that's going to stop. Okay? So I would ask those of you who are been walking with the Lord a long time, if you, if you hear a baby start to go crazy, especially one of mine, um, just pray that the Holy Spirit would calm them, um, that in any time you hear a baby's cry, especially in our church, pray that the Lord would save that baby someday. That there might be a complete gathering of believers from our church. Um, so, if if you would pray with me, we'll get we'll kick this thing off. Holy God, we do love you, and Lord, I have publicly said I, I have no confidence in myself to do this. I pray for Brock right now that he would be at peace that he would be a blessing. I pray, God, that you would be merciful to the listeners, Lord, because <clears throat> there is no power in the messenger. You have reminded me of that all week. I pray, God, that nothing I say would be uh, unbiblical. I pray, God, that I would not be a stumbling block, but, Lord, that your message that I believe you gave me would be powerful. I ask you, Father, to meet with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, Brian made a comment. He said, what do you do when someone asks you to preach and you're not prepared? Well, you start where you're at. Well, our family's in John, so you're in John. And we're going to start in John 4. Um, my, my little title for this is Lessons from the Lawn. Because that's where I get to study. Um, I, have, I have my quiet time in the morning. And then I listen to preaching all day while I'm driving on my mower. And uh, so we are going to read quite a bit of scripture today uh, because I felt like that way there would be a lot less focus on me because we'll just let God and his word defend himself. So if you would, we are going to read John 4, 1 through 26. And as we go, I'm going to kind of set the stage for where we're at. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making it and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman came from Samaria, from Samaria, came to draw water. She said to her, he, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you. Me. Now, what's happening here, a lot of pastors have used this for the, the definition of evangelism. Jesus has to go through Samaria. Why? Because he has a divine appointment with a lady. And if you remember, he just got out of chapter 3 where he was talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was basically the perfect Jew. He was high up. He was knowledgeable. He did everything right. And still, Jesus said you're not saved. You have no hope because all your hope is in the law. And now we swing to chapter 4 and he meets with a Samaritan who they didn't deal with, a woman, and men did not speak to women, and in her own culture she was an outcast. I listened to a pastor preach on this and he pointed out that in that region there's springs everywhere. There was no reason that she had to go a half mile away to that well. Unless you're a woman of ill repute who nobody wants to be around. Hmm. Alright, so we, we have this swing from the best man in Israel to the worst, worst woman in Samaria. And Jesus meets with her. And he starts to talk to her. And she talks about natural things and he swings it to the supernatural. Starts talking about living water. And then, as they begin their, continue their conversation... He switches it to sin. He starts, shines, as Thomas said, he shines the spotlight, turns on the flashlight, right on the sin. 
And he says, go call your husband. And she has to confess, I have no husband. And he begins to reveal more. He says, you're right. You've had five. And then immediately when she's confronted with her sin, she gets religious. As most people will. As you're evangelizing, whoa, whoa, I go to church. I do this. I do that. And what does she say? Hey, I perceive you're a prophet. We're supposed to worship here. You say there, who's right? And he says, you missed it. And he starts talking about worshiping in spirit and truth. And I love what he says. Um, uh, in verse 21, he says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, I understand that could be the understood, you know, you of a corporate people, but because I believe she got saved, I think he's saying, it's coming. I'm going to save you. You will worship in spirit and truth. Mm. And he goes on to say, um, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. Why? Because Jesus came from the Jews. So salvation came from the Jews. Now we understand all these basic principles. And as he gets going, you can see her soften as she said, I know that the Messiah is coming. Why does she know the Messiah is coming? In our Bible study at home the other night, Andrew pointed out, was it the, the Pentateuch? I mean, on the road to um, Emmaus, Jesus just unfolded the law and the prophets pointing to him. So maybe she was convinced of the Messiah from the Pentateuch. Because I believe the Samaritans, that's what they hold on to, is just the, either the first or the four books of the Bible. They hold on to that. So maybe she was evangelized by God's word. Then again... Maybe, because Jesus goes on to say after this that the disciples are going to be reaping what they did not sow. So we know there's always a remnant. There's always a people spreading the gospel. So maybe she was evangelized. But she says, I know the Messiah is coming. So God has softened her heart through the recognition of sin, pushing aside of religion. And then he says, I, just, I who speak to you am he. Now, I wanted to set that up for you because I think back in 24, if you would look, that, look at that with me, verse 24, Jesus this whole time is creating a worshiper. Now, I want you to understand, when we share the gospel, we're not creating anything. We share the gospel, God either gives life to a dead soul, or He does not. We, we don't muster up anything. Christ, while he's sharing the gospel, is actually saving them. Okay, does that, I mean, does that make sense? I mean, he is redeeming their heart as he's speaking to them. So as he's speaking to her, he is telling her what she is to become. And he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, I think the first part, these two parts we're going to talk about, and then when we get to truth, the spirit and truth, I'm going to use that as a jumping off point to kind of refresh our minds this morning. Um, the first part, I think, is easily applicable and understood. He said, you worship in spirit. It's not in Samaria. It's not even in Jerusalem. You're going to worship in spirit. Like, if you came this morning, and this is the first time that you've been in the Word... This is the first time you have sung to the Lord all week. You're missing something. Because we are not to only worship in a place. Make sense? I mean, Jesus said that. It's not on this mountain, not on that mountain. You're worshiping in spirit. Where's your spirit? Wherever you are. 
You can worship eating dinner. Amen? You can worship while you're driving, while you're cutting grass, while you're submitting to your employer, while you're rocking your baby. You can worship God anytime. And that's what he, I mean, you have to worship in spirit. And now, obviously, if we're talking about worshiping it, it is, it is a believer. So we don't have to worry about an unsaved soul. We're talking about a spirit that is in communion with the Holy Spirit. But then he says, you have to worship in truth. You cannot have a God that you make. What do we call that? An idol. You have to worship God in truth. Now, where do we find truth? The Word. Alright, so what Jesus is saying is, it's not a place. You don't get to decide where to go because it's everywhere. And it's not your own way. You are going to worship God in the way that I say. As God is revealed in Scripture. And this is the point that I want to kind of use as a jumping off point is, what is true about God that we have either never submitted to or have submitted to and seen God working that in our life. And so we're going to talk about the attributes of God. Now, an attribute is just a fancy word for a characteristic. All right, It's something that is true about God revealed in Holy Scripture. So we are going to jump all over the map. Um, Susan made me promise that I wouldn't go flying through the Scriptures so that people had time to turn pages because mine's all on one sheet. So... Um, <laughs> I would like to start off this with a rather long quote. And I have people in my family who are visual learners. I'm an auditory learner. If I listen to it, that's how I learn. So I asked Spencer to put my rather long quote from Spurgeon up on the screen. So if you'd like to kind of track along with what, uh, uh, what we're seeing here, that would be great. All right, this is from C.H. Spurgeon talking about God. It has been said by some that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind and the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise. But he is like a wild donkey's colt, and with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday, and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend to more humble the mind than thoughts of God. But, while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. 
The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, the subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing on the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what we are going to do this morning. We are going to learn about God. I actually heard a, uh, a theologian say, that in his seminary, in every seminary he knows of, there's not one class devoted to the study of God. There's systematic theology, which has a chapter. And I cannot vouch for this because I got married halfway through seminary and never finished. Amen. Um, and so, it's. but it, it seems to be, if you go look at all the shelves in the Christian bookstore, how many of them are devoted to the study of God? Um, now, because this is Lessons from the Lawn, I'm going to be depending heavily on my book, which I'm going to quote from quite a bit. This is Attributes of God by Arthur Peak. If you've never read it, please get it. He's going to do a much better job than I will, because I'm only going to touch on five or six concepts about God that are revealed in Scripture. But my, my prayer is that, in essence, as we go through this, you will... Maybe you learn something new about God that you had no idea was in Scripture. Or maybe you'll be refreshed by something that you had buried that was a little too hard to deal with. Then again, maybe it'll be something that the Lord used just to show you something new and refresh or maybe even redeem your heart. So, um, as we think about God, the first attribute that I would like to talk to you about is His solid. Solitariness, solitariness, the fact that he's all by himself. He doesn't need anybody. If you have your Bible open, could you please turn to Isaiah 40, 15 through 18? Isaiah 40, 15 through 18. God is solitary. He needs nothing. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need the earth. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need Anything. He is complete in and of himself. Isaiah 40, 15 through 18. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less 
the nothing and emptiness. Now, I need you to understand, if God does not need nations, then our theology has to be shaped by the fact that He still needs no nations. For example, there is a huge movement to get our country back. Now, am I opposed to having biblical standards come back into our country? No. But does God need the United States of America? No. He's just fine. He's not, as Pastor likes to say, He's not wrenching His hands up in heaven trying to figure out what He's going to do. Because He's solitary. He needs nothing. Please turn all the way over to 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. And it says, Which He will display at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal, to eternal dominion. Amen. Now, what is the implication of that? If your God is completely full. If he's, com if he's complete without you, then if you have a bad day of worship, is he messed up? No. If you go out and evangelize and 10 people get saved, is he made better? No. Nothing in your life affects God. Therefore, he can take care of you. If He is complete in and of Himself, the impact on your life is the fact that He is in control. He is sovereign, which we'll talk about. He is complete. He's mighty. He's powerful. All of these things should drive you to worship. You remember where we started? You're going to worship the Father and Spirit of truth. Anytime you find out something about God, it drives you back to praising Him that He is complete in and of Himself. He doesn't need anything. And I want to emphasize that. Because I think all too often, we humanize God. There was a quote in this book that where Luther wrote to Erasmus. I think that was the guy. But he wrote to a guy he was debating with. And he said, your God is much too human. And I think all too often we think, when I'm having a bad day, man, God had a bad day. When I had a great day, whew, God's doing good. He's complete. Amen. Now, the second, that was, the, we're going to, like I said, we're going to try to do six attributes. The second attribute that I would like to talk about is his knowledge. The knowledge of God. Not us knowing of him, but his knowledge. Please turn to Hebrews 4.13. And as you, as you read, I, want, I mean, as you turn, I want to read this quote. It says, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, present, and the future. Now, as we think about that, our minds don't really get around that. 
I mean, have you ever, have you ever like just stared at someone and said, man, I wonder what they're thinking. What is going on inside that head? I know I've said it while I'm parenting. All right? You know, head, head first out of a tree makes you go, what was that boy thinking? Uh, but with God, he never wonders because he knows. Now, let's take Scripture and then align ourselves to Scripture. Look at Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees everything. And you know how you can, um, in my family we call it putting up walls. You know, when, you, when you're starting to feel a little vulnerable, someone's starting to get a little too close to you, and you don't want to have to deal with that, you put up a wall, God sees through it. You can make people think you're having a great day. You can make people think you're having a bad day. God knows. Everything is naked and exposed before Him. Please turn over to Psalm 139, 2 through 4. Psalm 139, 2 through 4. And here the psalmist is praising the Lord. And he says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Young child, did you know that when you're about to say something to your brother or sister that's not nice, God knew it before you said it? Husband, before you snapped at your wife, God knew it was coming. He knows every word. He knows everything that's happening. And that should cause you great fear, but also great worship. Because nothing's sneaking up on the God whom you serve. And the last scripture I'll just read to you. It's Ezekiel 11.5. And it says, And the Spirit of the Lord fell on me, and he said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. How about the things that you never said? God knows those too. If it was not for his grace, probably all of us could be condemned just for the thoughts we had on the way to church this morning. Because without Christ redeeming those thoughts, without the Holy Spirit convicting us where we would repent, or just sin before the Lord, He sees it all. Now once again, it should cause great fear to examine our thoughts, but it should be greatly comforting. Because why did Jesus share that with her? So that she would know she is supposed to worship in spirit and truth. As she understands the truth that God knows everything. That he knows every wound that he needs to heal. He knows every fear he needs to conquer. He knows every need. You know, and oftentimes we tend to think, well, if he knows everything, why'd that happen? Why don't I have this? Well, guess you don't need it. I don't need it. Because if he knows and he's sovereign, he's in control, then he really does, if we submit to Scripture. See, lots of times we submit to what we feel. We submit to what we think. We submit to 
all the things around us, but you need to start with the character and nature of God. Pastor said before, in evangelism, you always want to start with the character and nature of God. I think in worship, you want to start with the character and nature of God. In any aspect of your life, if you have to make a decision, start with the character and nature of God. And in this case, we can worship Him because He knows. You know, there have been so many times that I have prayed over my family and prayed for something and they they didn't get it. I started wondering, it's like, Lord, am I doing a bad job praying? But you know, I realized, no, God knows what my family needs. And if He says no to what I think they need, then either He knows that the process of getting to that need will sanctify them, or he knows that that need is just a one. But I can rest. I can worship him because he does actually know what we need. Now, that's two. We've talked about the fact that he is solitary. He's all by himself. He needs nothing. We've talked about now that he knows everything. And thirdly, I'd like to talk about his sovereignty. He is king. He is in control. He is above all. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. And once again, the reason that I'm making y'all jog all over your Bible is because I don't want anybody to think that Eric just made up something. You have to read the Scripture for yourself. You have to submit your life to Scripture. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. As we get there, here's the quote from this chapter. It says, Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, He is the Most High, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, because He is sovereign. That means He reigns, and nobody gets to say yes or no. Isaiah 46, 8-11. through Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring from the end, from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from my far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. If you're God, you get to decide what's happening. You get to put the preposition I all through your Bible, and you're not sinning. God is sovereign. Lots of times we think of sovereignty as one of the kings who might have ruled in a medieval time who did it as a tyrant and would kill people and make slaves of people. And he just got to do it because he wanted to. But when we think of God in his sovereignty... We have to always see it in light of Scripture. Because He is a loving sovereign. He is a wrathful sovereign. He is a jealous sovereign. He's not going to let His people go. He's always going to provide for His people. He knows what His people need. He is completely in control. And that is something, once again, let's go back. Something you can worship God for. Now, if you choose not to worship God for Him being sovereign then you're not submitting to Scripture. Because there's a lot of people, if you say sovereignty of God, they kind of get a little upset sometimes. And I want you to understand, if it's 
in Scripture, and God revealed it, just like we just read, ask the Lord how you could worship Him because of that revealed truth. Because He said you have to worship in spirit and truth. What is revealed about God is He's sovereign. Please turn over to Daniel 4, 34-35. This is when Nebuchadnezzar has been insane. He has been out in the field for seven years. His hair has grown long. He's eating grass like an animal. And then it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Meaning God gave it back. God took away his mind. He gave it back. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, became a Christian. He's worshiping God. And listen what he says. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? You can't do that. If you submit to Scripture that He is sovereign, you cannot shake your fist at God. That young lady who wrote that tweet, when her daddy and her two sisters died, said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. What was she doing? She was worshiping in spirit and truth. She was submitting to the revealed attribute of God that He is sovereign. Susan and I were talking. And as silly as this seems... If that dad had run outside and grabbed his two babies and run back inside and gone a couple laps around the tornado and God was not calling him home, he would not have gone home. That's right. Does that make sense? God's sovereign. A tornado, as powerful as that is. One of my preacher buddies grew up in that area. And he sent me a picture one time of a fence post going through an asphalt curb. Just, I mean, those things are so powerful. And God did not go, oops, I didn't mean to send that one. No, he called that brother home. That brother did what he was supposed to do. Those seven other babies are going to know that their father laid down his life for his children. That's a picture of Christ. That mama will have years to evangelize her unsaved children because of the sacrifice of that daddy. Why? Because he submitted to Scripture. And he loved his wife and his family as Christ loved the church. I mean, you, I mean, you, you, you see a story like that and you think, wow, that's amazing. I wonder if I would do that. But I want you to understand that he did it, I believe, because of the working of the Holy Spirit in his life where he submitted to the revealed truth of Scripture over his life. And so sovereignty is something you can hold on to. Just like the sister who, who tweeted that, she's holding on. Yeah, I mean, you've you got to imagine, she did not type that grinning from ear to ear. What's she holding on to? Sovereignty. My God knows me, and my God gives me what I need. And if He takes it away, So, the sovereignty of God is something for which we can worship God. Is it always easy? No. 
once again, go back to Jesus evangelized the woman. She got saved because the God of the universe was speaking truth to her. And the first thing he says is, you're going to worship in spirit and truth. Submit to what the Bible says about God. Now, our fourth characteristic or attribute of God, four out of six, so y'all stick with me. You can give your kids a test when you get home to see if they remember all six. The, the, the next one, if you could turn over to James 1.17, is the immutability of God. And I know that's a big fancy theological word, immutability. That means that God doesn't change. Now, um, remember that statement I made that Luther said that we have humanized God way too much? Lots of times I think we think of God as a changing God. And He's not. The same God who is in the Old Testament, the same God in the New Testament, the same God who spoke the world into existence is the same God who's here today. And, and immutability. God is perpetually the same. Subject to no change in His being, attributes, or determinations. Where we are subject to change. You know, there was one time that uh, we had Spencer in the house and he saw the picture of when we got married. He said, Mr. Kelly, you don't look like you. I changed. My hair fell from the top to my face. I mean, it was crazy. But we change. I mean, any of y'all, go look in a mirror. You changed. Some of you little guys, you used to be shorter. Now you're taller. Some of you tall guys have shrunk. Um, but, but we change. And we tend to think of God as changing. But revealed scripture is, He never changes. Is that a comfort? Absolutely. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Not even a little bit. He knows exactly what you need. He can do it. He needs nothing. And he never changes. It means he has the same power he did in eternity past. The same power he's going to have in eternity future. Listen. You don't have to turn there. Listen to Exodus 3, 13-14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He's the same. He's an always I am. He's not an I was. He's not an I will be. He is an I am. He does not change. And we can worship God for that. Malachi 3.6 is another one. It says, For I the Lord do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The reason you have the life you do is because God doesn't change. And we can worship Him for that. Remember, we're, start, we're going back. And this is the repetition. I want this in your head. We're going to worship in spirit and truth. And if we know that the Bible says God does not change, then that means that last year when you had a great year in your business, and this year if you're having a bad year... Guess what? God didn't like forget how to give people money. Okay? Last year when your budget worked great, 
and this year it's not. Or, let's say you're in a dry time. God is not scrambling, trying to figure out, oh, I messed up and i got to get this sister out of this. No, 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 no. He never changed. He's constant. Run to Him and worship. Remember, that's why Jesus saved her. To worship. Now, please... Turn, uh, turn to Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. Now, this is everybody's favorite. If you say, what's God like? People are going to say God is love. God is love. And it's true. We can worship Him for that. How do we know that? Because He gave us His Son. He killed Him so that we would not have to bear His wrath. Now, what do we have to do in, in, in reading about God's love? Let's see. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God sovereignly loved, set that love on Israel, and it had nothing to do with them. Praise the Lord. Because guess what? He loves you, and it's not because you're good looking. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you're clever. Not because you can do 55 million push-ups. It's not because you can drive a car real fast. God loves you. Because he wants to. He's sovereign. And he sets his love on you. Now is that refreshing? Yes. Hold on to that. Rest in that. Worship God for the fact that he loved you while you hated him. Because before you were saved, Scripture tells us we hated God. We were at enmity with God. We were at war with God when he loved you. Praise the Lord for that. And if it's not, remember, remember that quote? by Spurgeon it's a time to think about God to be refreshed to have wounds healed but then also to have pride humbled now the, the most obvious place to go when we talk about the love of God is 1 John so please close your Bible turn it over and then open it again and you'll be right near 1 John 1 John chapter 4 7 through 12. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Ladies and gentlemen, when you worship God because He is love, it causes you to love others. We love others because God first loved us. And we can praise Him and worship Him for that. And I was thinking about this 
uh, recently that so many of us could probably say, but Eric, I don't have time to sit and think about this stuff. You don't have time not to think about it. Because we are to worship God in spirit and truth. What's true about Him that is revealed in Scripture, you must submit to. And if you find yourself to be unloving, maybe meditate on the Father who loved you. If you struggle with evangelism, maybe meditate on the fact that He loved you enough to save you. Now, finally, our last attribute that we're going to go over this morning, and there's many, 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 many more, is the wrath of God. I know that's not one that a lot of people like to talk about. I don't know why I'm ending on that one, but um, but that's where we're that's where we're at. Um, since y'all are in First John, let's move a little to the left and go to Colossians three six. Colossians three six. This is very short. He's talking about a whole list of sins, and he says, "On account of these, what." The wrath of God is coming. It is a real thing, and it is coming, and it is coming because of sin. If you go back um, one more, or two, two more books, Ephesians 5.6. So we're at Colossians 3.6, now Ephesians 5.6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, and once again it's following a list of sin, Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And maybe the most popular verse about wrath, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Here's a quote. It says, The wrath of God in His eternal detail is His eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. God hates sin. And you say, Eric, why in the world would that produce worship? Because if you get your mind to thinking about the fact that God hates sin and still lets you worship Him, that'll get you thinking about His love. If you get to thinking about His wrath that is to come, guess what? You're probably going to go share the gospel with somebody. You remember Spurgeon said, set your mind to it. There's nothing so as important as taking hold of God and an attribute of God, submitting to it, worshiping Him because of it. And you can worship God for His wrath because that means He's a righteous God. He is a just God. That means if you've been wronged, you don't have to take care of the person who wronged you. God will take care of that. He will have vengeance, not you. And you can worship Him for that. I know that sounds weird, but you can actually worship God because of His wrath. Because it's a righteous and just act for Him to pour it out, which means that your God is good. And, 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 and beloved, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. In our world, when we humanize God, we tend to think just like ourselves, I am either loving to my children a lot of time, or I'm something else. I'm not a both and. As humans, we tend to not get the whole, sorry, um, 
do being two things at once, being two emotions at once. But I want you to understand, God is lovingly wrathful and his um, and in 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 see that was in his wrath he can be loving and in his love he can be full of wrath. Remember how many times he disciplined his children? Why? He loved them, but he poured out his wrath on them. Now we and 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 and, and you can slap every characteristic together. His love defines all his other attributes. All of his other attributes defines his love. Immutability. What's that mean? His love never changes. And, and then the first one is solitary. His love is solitary. He doesn't need you to earn his love because his love is perfect all of itself. Does that make sense? You take an attribute and it defines the other attributes. It doesn't war with them. So often people want to say, oh, God is just love. No, he's, he's all of them. You know, in this tiny little book, he goes through, I think, 14 chapters of different attributes of God. And I would encourage you, please get it. Use it as a family devotion. If it, or just use it for your personal devotion. Or just to understand there's a bigger, thicker book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Get that one. That's a great one too. But submit yourself to Scripture over and over and over. And now, I've talked to you a lot about the attributes of God born out of John 4, where Jesus told her, you will worship in spirit and truth. All right, so everybody kind of tracking with where I, I was hoping you would go with that. And I hope you understand that's a biblical idea. I mean, because scripture even says in, in, in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? You, you, you need to seek in your mind to be like Christ, to be humble like Christ, who had every right to do something and didn't. You're, you're focusing your mind there. And then another place in Philippians, it says, think about these things, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about it. Discipline your mind. And if you say, Eric, I have no time, what else are you disciplining your mind on? Do you spend your time in front of a TV and say, ah, oh, I missed my quiet time? Or in your quiet time, do you read a two-minute devotion rather than sitting and pondering God? Because I want, I, want, I, want, I want to tie this all together. Because all of this <clears throat> um, thinking about God is, once again, designed to bring us to worship. Worship born out of the Scripture. Now, I want you to understand something. Worship is a fruit of the Spirit. When the woman of the well got saved, what did Jesus say? You will worship in spirit and truth. You will worship. If you don't have a worshiping heart, it's just like Galatians 5. All those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think I missed one. But all of those... Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Now, is every believer going to have exactly the same amount of fruit? Like, one believer might be naturally more loving. Another believer might be naturally more joyous. I understand that. But that is the fruit of the Spirit. The whole thing. Not just, not just love. 
All of that is the fruit of the Spirit. But I think it's always fun to go through Scripture and find the other ones. And worship, as defined by Scripture, is right here. If you don't have a worshiping heart, maybe pray that the Lord would give it to you. And how are you going to get a worshiping heart? You're just going to conjure it up? It's born out of the Word. I want you all to see something real quick. If you could turn to Jeremiah 17 and then turn to Psalm 1. You know, kind of mark both places with your fingers. I want to show you something um, that I think is very important for understanding. Because as you think about the Lord, as you submit to what He reveals to you from Scripture, you have to trust Him, right? I mean, you have to trust that what He revealed in Scripture is right. Does that make sense? You don't get to say, I do like that one, I don't like that one. You have to say, yes, sir. How many times did you have to say to your daddy or your mama, yes, sir, yes, ma'am? It's the same. I mean, this way I think of it in Scripture is, Lord, there's the truth. Yes, sir. I don't understand it. Got to wrestle with it. Or you, man, that's awesome. But all of it is under the category of, yes, sir. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. And then we're going to quickly move over to Psalm 1. I want you to see something. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all things, uh, in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. You see the parallel here? Trusting the Lord and meditating on his law? Both produce fruit. How do you trust the Lord you don't know? And how are you going to get to know that Lord unless you're not in His Word? If you're in His Word, you will produce fruit. Now, I think it is very important to understand what Scripture just said. You'll produce your fruit in season. Okay? I think we tend to think of fruit as, i got to have all of it all the time. And there is going to be a season of joy. There will be a season of self-control. There will be a season of worship. But just like a tree continues to produce and produce, even in the dry spells, when no fruit's on that tree, but it's coming. And, and, and as I always tell my kids, that apple tree never has to go to get an apple out. It produces apples because it's an apple tree. If you have to hunker down and think real hard to get some fruit of the Spirit in your life, you might have a heart problem. That's one of those times that you do as Peter encouraged and examine yourself. As Paul encouraged to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. Submit yourself to Scripture. Go to Scripture. If you don't have a habit of going to Scripture, stop it. Make a habit. Go to Scripture and think. Be confronted about sin. Be refreshed over faithfulness. Had someone tell me recently, I just want to hear that I'm doing something right. Well, brother or sister, if 
anything I said this morning is something that you're doing, you're doing it right. Praise the Lord. If you're not doing it, submit to Scripture. Always submit to Scripture. So, with that, I would like to encourage you to please don't think of this time as um, a time that a, a guy got up here and just rambled. But if there is an attribute of God that I described this morning you never heard of, go look it up. Think about it. Be refreshed. I love that part of that quote when he says, when you start plunging the depths of God, there is a salve for every wound. Your broken heart can be healed. And then all your pride is going to be crushed. If you're a man of pride, go think about God. He'll fix it. You know, I had a friend of mine say, I just want joy. I haven't had joy for so long. Go to God. Think about God. Find in His Word what He says about joy. If you struggle with self-control, go to His Word. Find out what He says about Himself. I mean, have you ever thought about the fruit of the Spirit is actually the fruit of His Spirit? God exhibits self-control every day. God exhibits love every day. God exhibits joy every day. He's a joyous God. He is self-controlled God. Because he has every right to kill everybody at any moment. And he doesn't. He's self-controlled. And he will produce worship in you as you find yourself in him. And like I said at the very, very beginning, I don't stand up here as a man who hopes that my speaking ability was great. Because I know there's no power in the messenger. The power is only in the message. So please, if you submit yourself to Scripture, praise the Lord. If you have a habit of that, praise the Lord. Let me pray over us. Holy God, I love you. Thank you for the opportunity to declare your word. And I pray, God, that uh, your attributes would be something that becomes a new hobby for somebody in here. Where they would desire to know more about you. I pray God even one of our young ones might even get saved contemplating the fact that you never had anybody create you. And that just baffles my brain every time I think about it. But at the end of that baffling is worship. My God is not a wooden idol. It's not a stone idol. It's not an idol made of flesh. It's you. And Lord, I thank you that you have spoken to me all through this week. Where I was able to contemplate the Godhead in amongst all the spiritual warfare. All the struggles. And I can testify, Lord, that you are good. And what you do is good. And even in the pain, you are still a loving God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And I, I printed off, if, if this stimulates any conversation in your family, I printed off a little 
grid of the attributes of God. If you ever want to, maybe dad, mom, pick up one of these, talk with your kids. There's no scripture references on it. So, I mean, you'll, you'll have to go look for other resources. But at least it has a lot of the characteristics that are revealed in scripture and they have definitions of them. So I'll stick them over by Brother Joe. If you want them, please take one.